Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so thrilled to be welcoming back the wonderful Natasha Leggero to talk all about her current book, The World Deserves My Children, um, which comes out in November 15th. And I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the voice and the scope of the book, because obviously in the process of writing this over several years, your daughter's grown up, you know, she was a baby when you first pitched the idea, you know, she's now... Um, a toddler and has gone through so many different stages and, and ages with you. And I was really interested in from the idea that you first pitched for the book and how you started to really conceptualize it, where that matches up to the final version versus new spaces and new elements that you found along the way as she was growing up and growing older during the process. It's really true. When when I was started writing the book, I was like trying to like, I was stuffing my boobs full of cabbage because to try to like make the milk stopped flowing because I didn't want to breastfeed anymore. So I'm like breastfeeding. And now my daughter is like almost five. And like she's, you know, she went from having straight hair to curly hair. And she's got this like huge vocabulary. And yes, it definitely um, shaped the book because so many new things were happening. And then, of course, the pandemic shaped the book as well because I was kind of in this concentrated life with my child that I honestly wasn't that's not quite what I was planning on signing up for like I was definitely planning on outsourcing uh you know I would say at least 40 to 50 hours a week to someone to help me so I could work um and then the pandemic happened and I didn't get to do that so I ended up spending all of my time with my child which was you know looking back was a total gift you know because I think for families, the pandemic in a way, like I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner at a table with my family for two and a half years. <laughs> like I was not planning on doing that. And so it's just interesting, like how, yes, it totally shaped it. And I think it made me a better parent and I think it made us a closer family. So um, definitely things would morph and change while I was writing. <laughs> And in terms of, of the process and, and the writing of it all, did you find that there were a lot of parallels to the journey of writing stand-up comedy? Because you've always been incredibly personal in your stand-up comedy. And so I was interested in the journey of kind of taking that skill set into a different narrative form, um, you know, and really finding the, the comedic sensibility and the voice and how you wanted that energy to live and breathe on the page. Yeah, and you know, the thing about stand-up is it's one medium, you know, and I think that like, comedy can like be put into so many different outlets you know and I think that the comedic idea when you play with it it's like you you just have to follow the creative energy sometimes like it could be tap dancing is what you want to like start doing and maybe you'll find a way to like incorporate it with comedy if, if that's if that's the the medium so I think stand-up is a great medium and luckily I couldn't do that during the pandemic so like, all of my comedic ideas were just going into the book, which I think was very helpful that I didn't really have another outlet because nobody was leaving the house. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's and, and it was fun to play with how how that would be in a book, because. Sometimes I'll write I, a lot of times in the book, I was writing in a way I, I, I would use parentheses because I'm kind of trying to do the comedic timing, but in like, you know essay form so it's it's, it's a, a different thing but um but yeah it, it was really fun to be able to channel that into book form 
and you're bringing up there the the concept of essay form and and it's kind of like each of the chapters is kind of very thematic in its own way within the overall structure of the book and within that I was interested in in how you kind of approach the idea that you're writing something that's that's very much about your personal experience going through IVF going through pregnancy self-identity and becoming a mother what it means to raise a child in this day and age and at the same time you're still tying it to larger concepts and conversations you know you're kind of approaching that dialogue of what does it mean to have a child in this day and age when we know that the climate crisis is impeding on us and the next generation may know that the world is coming to an end in their lifetime um and so how did you kind of find the balance women, between women giving a nine-year-old realizing that she doesn't have control of her body when she grows yeah. up you know i mean that is also part of it yeah you know and within that how did you how did you approach finding how you wanted to tell very personal stories but where and how you wanted to tie in those larger thematic discussions within the book I mean, to be honest, it took a lot of work because, <laughs> you know, I, I, I would I would talk to the editor and she would have some ideas and I would have some ideas and she was a mom during the pandemic too and she was like having to move and move out of Manhattan and getting, she got a farmhouse at one point and like I think we were both like trying to figure out how to navigate and so, you know, you would just, I, I think for me like talking a lot was really helpful and experiencing it and then writing it all out and seeing like and talking to friends and like what's the most interesting way in you know and anecdote anecdotes are a big part of it too because it, the book isn't just about having a small child because you know my kid was like one through four when I was writing the book but like you know I have a lot of friends with teenage children and you know observing those parents approaches I think was really helpful and instructive and also, it's like, I don't know if, if, if before the pandemic, I think this is a, a post-pandemic thing, but like this, all of these Instagram moms, like telling you, and some of them are doctors, and they're all telling you what to do and how to, when your kid has a tantrum, use these three steps. And, you know, sometimes I would like, I would try these things and they don't work. And I'm like, who, who decided that this is, there's no proof yet that this is working, you know, that you can't say to your kid, good job. You have to say, you worked really hard on that. You know, this is like all this like new style of parenting, but like we, we don't have proof yet. We don't have like 50 year olds who are all raised like that to say like, oh yeah, they are way more successful and self-possessed. And yes, that that is that that is what we should be doing. So, I mean, and I'm sure some of it's right, but I do think that like, a lot of this new style of parenting presupposes that you have nothing else to do with your day except parent. And, you know, yeah, it's better to have your kid put their shoes on by themselves. But guess what? I don't have 45 minutes to wait for her to put her shoes on. So I'm just going to be putting her shoes on for her. And I think that, like, you know, just kind of grappling with all of the stuff, like what the Internet's telling you and all these doctor moms are telling you how to raise your kid and then your parents, your other friends are judging you and then your parents are judging you. And it's like, maybe there isn't one right way to be doing it. And I think that like filtering all of this information and then, you know, filtering all this information through the lens of comedy and then what I'm choosing to do, I think, you know, it, it, it was fun to research and interesting to, to test. And I think that, you know, I've always been the kind of person who likes to like, get all the information and then make a decision. So a lot of it is like gathering information and anecdotes and, you know, really trying to figure out what the best way is 
for me, but that doesn't mean it's the best way for someone else. So I, I think that, yeah. That answer the question <laughs> it doesn't and with that idea as well that there is no one specific right way to parent you also pull upon talking about your own childhood and how your mother raised you as a single parent in a time period where it was fine to leave your kid in the car for hours and now you can't leave your kid in the car when you go to the grocery store and just finding those juxtapositions did you always have a sense that that was an important aspect to include as well in the there's no right way also looking at what are some of the things that we used to do that were considered totally fine which really brings up this idea that however we're raising kids now is going to look very different 5, 10, 15, 20 years from here. Yeah, I, I think we're deaf. I mean, I don't think it's good that we left kids in the car. I think that there was probably enough abductions <laughs> and abuse that people were like, oh, yeah, let's not do that anymore. Um, so I'm glad that we don't do that. But everybody did it. Um, but, you know, when I first had my kid, I didn't know that you that no one thinks their kids anymore. That's just not something it wasn't on my radar, you know, I was spanked and all my friends were spanked. So I just assumed you still spank your kids, but now having a precious, beautiful child, like I would never spank her. And, you know, I, I think that we just, I mean, maybe if she like ran out into traffic and I would like grab her arm and try to like show her that you don't do that or something, but I don't think I would spank her. Um, maybe I would yell at her or something. Um, but yeah, it's like you really do learn a lot. And the, the kid teaches you too, because it's like, I don't want to teach her that if she wants someone to do something that you hit them, <laughs> that doesn't really, you know, so I, I, I'm assuming we are evolving as a species in our parenting. So hopefully, um, hopefully I'm part of, of the, the good part of the evolution of the parent. And in the writing of the book as well, you know, there's obviously anecdotes that are purely comedically based and then there's also you know very personal emotional trajectory of, of what it meant to go through IVF what all of those hormones did you know what it means to be in a position of having one embryo left that's potentially going to work and again you know you still deliver that with it with a comedic tone in those in those moments and in those anecdotes and stories did you always have a sense as you started writing the more emotional side of the book from your own personal experience of, of what that tone felt like it was going to be for you or was that something where you kind of played around with those sections a little bit as you were writing it well, like anything, once you go deep into writing an, an idea, things start to come to you, you know? And I, and I think that I started to remember a lot of things, especially in like writing a chapter of my own childhood. You know, you start to remember these things or like discipline, like how my mom disciplined me, you know, writing sentences, soap in my mouth. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's very different what we do today. And, and I hadn't remembered all of those things. Um, I'm, I'm emotionally, I'm, that's not really what I lead with. I'm always leading with comedy. And, you know, that's from, you know, a bad childhood. <laughs> not bad, but, you know, it's like from, you know, comedians are very specific types of people. Usually stand-up comedians have, you know, maybe didn't get enough love from one parent and they kind of spent their whole life kind of, you know, managing the emotions of everyone in the family and, like, you know, okay, well, if everyone else is going to cry, then I have to be strong. And, you know, so, so you, you lead with the comedy for reasons from your childhood or whatever, but, you know, just thinking about it, I, I was before when I had that one embryo left and I didn't think it was going to work. I wrote a long letter to my husband telling him that I personally didn't have, I didn't believe that the child wouldn't be mine 
if we used someone else's egg with his sperm because you know i said to him like you know uh, it, yes nana's uh nana's talent for spaghetti sauce might not be <laughs> might not be inherited in our child or whatever but it was like I was never that close with my family and there was a lot of people with behavior problems in my family. And I just, I really came to a point where I was very fine with, um, with not using my own eggs and in a, in a way that my husband was not, he was like, I don't want to adopt. I don't want to use, you know, you're the person I fell in love with. I don't want to use someone else's eggs. And, you know, I, I had just already like framed it in my mind in a way that I was like super fine with and you know just trying to express that to him and I ended up being able to use my own eggs so that was like very lucky but um I had kind of already gone through that so I, I think that just trying to talk about it talk about it in a way that was emotional and you know trying to remember all of that too because I <laughs> I kind of like just with having a baby, I was very much like, okay, now that's done. Now on to the next thing, you know, like, okay, now we've got to like fertilize them. Now we've got to test embryos. Now, we, you know, you have this timeline for yourself and you're constantly, I would talk to friends all the time. Like it was really, really hard decisions. It, everything feels like, you know, do I put both embryos up? Does, does that have a stronger chance of one of them living? Like you, you've got to kind of like talk to friends because the doctors don't, really help you that much i mean they try to but you know the doctors are like do you want to test your embryos and i'm like i don't know what would you do and they're like well just so you know if you test them they have a you know this percentage chance of all dying and but you could have babies with deformity you know and it's like it's really challenging to try to figure out like the mental calculus around like whoa I don't know. And, you know, I, sometimes it's annoying. Doctors are just like, yeah, what do you want to do? It's like, what would you tell your child? You know, what would you tell your daughter? I don't know what to do. You're the doctor. Like, how do I, how do I maneuver this? And I am just talking to other women, like even now talking to a friend, she was like, in terms of testing the embryos, it's always this hard thing to figure out if you should test the embryos. And then it's like, well, this is kind of dark, but if you're okay, getting an abortion down the road if you have to because the baby is not healthy then maybe don't test the embryos and the doctor is not going to tell you this but you know if you test them you could ruin a bunch of potential children because you're testing them you know it's very invasive going into the little petri dish so you know that's another way to look at it so there's just all these different ways of looking at things that doctors won't talk about like how how do you get pregnant like no one's telling you in life, like you got to stick your fingers up your vagina and see what the consistency is. And only those two days can you get pregnant. People don't really know about this stuff. And I, I just think that that's about as gross as it gets in my book because everyone gets so grossed out. No one talks about it. And miscarriages are like things that people don't want to talk about. And so many people have them and struggle. And I just think like the more as women we can just be talking about this stuff and making it out in the open you know men would be talking about it if they were the ones who got pregnant so i, I just think just pulling off the veil a little bit and just like 
talking about it, not being afraid to ask the doctor a million questions, not being afraid to ask your friends a million questions and just really figuring out like, how am I going to do this? And also maybe you don't want to do it. My husband's always like, can you stop telling everyone to have a kid? <laughs> but I just think it was like such an amazing experience for me that I just, I, I, I think that children like are, are just so important and special that I don't think we should stop having them because of all of the bad things that are happening in the world. You know, and, and with all the things that, that you're sharing there as well, there's also the, the side of the fact that this book is also sharing elements of your relationship with your husband. And, you know, there's kind of a really lovely moment where you interview him within the book about parenthood and how you both kind of see that within your relationship dynamic, the difference between mothers and fathers within parenting. Um, you know, and, and when you and Moshe first started dating, um, you know, I've heard you say that one of the very first things that you would always do is say, is it OK if I talk about this? before you would bring any jokes onto stage. But at this point in your relationship, you know, you have, you know, the Endless Honeymoon podcast that you've been doing, you've toured together and talked about your relationship extensively. Has that really changed and evolved the space in, in not just the comfort level of the things that you're sharing for yourself, but kind of where this book also took the elements that you bought in from your relationship and how that has influenced the dynamic between the two of you and becoming parents as well? I mean, to be honest, when I interviewed him for the book, I just was like, oh, maybe this will be funny. But I actually learned a lot <laughs> of like, because, you know, as the mother, there's always like one person and it's usually the mom who's like a little more concerned about everything. And, you know, he kind of phrased it like my job, his job as the father is the chief fun officer. And like, I'm in charge. I'm the CFO. I'm, he's like, I'm in charge of like making sure the kid's having fun, which sort of butts against me trying to keep her safe. But, you know, just hearing him explain it and also being able to witness him, like, you know, I, I, he was not great at the baby stage. And I think that that's probably quite common with dads because like, what's he going to do? She needs me to survive, you know, but seeing him, put down things, you know, his own personal things that he wants to do, sacrifice doing his stuff for her. And I see him doing that and like, what a great dad he is. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that has helped seeing him in a good light because I, I think the pandemic, while it was really great for families, it was really bad for relationships. <laughs> like, you know, spending, we, we had never spent that much time together. And I never want to again, you know, like he, he used to go on the road three days a week and then I would go two days a week. And then, you know, we would go on a vacation and then we'd come back and I'd be gone and he'd be gone. And you know, that, that, that closing in on like breakfast, lunch, dinner, like every single, you know, grooming, uh, eating chips in bed, uh, you know, not picking up after yourself, like being constantly around this all the time. Like that was very, very challenging. So hopefully I don't roast him too much in the book for that. Um, cause that's kind of what I was going through. You know, that's the thing you have to kind of like, there is a space when writing a book, because I remember when I learned stand up, they were always saying like, you know, you want to bring a little bit, you have all your jokes and everything you want to say. And then there should be always be a little slice of the pie of like, who, where, where are you at right now? You know, are you in a good mood? Are you in a bad mood? Are you in a stressed mood? Like just to make it feel present. And I do think like with writing the book, it was the same kind of thing. There's always a little slice of the pie of like, okay, I'm going to talk about freezing my eggs and I'm going to talk about my husband and I'm going to talk about, you know, gender and I'm going to talk about discipline, but I'm also going to talk about it through the little lens of like what I'm going through right now. So 
Um, so yeah, so so definitely the book was shaped by what was happening in my life. And when the two of you are doing the, the podcast together, you know, obviously there's this very kind of like improvisational, very casual feel to the conversation, but there's also kind of a real structure in place in each of the episodes and kind of thematically what you're talking about, you know, whether there's callers calling in, whether there's emails that you're reading out that you've been sent, whether you have guests, you know, that'll kind of changing and shifting the dynamic. What's what's the level of detail that the two of you like to map out in terms of knowing what you're going to talk about, some of the spaces that you're going to go into on an episode versus really also just leaving a lot of the space open to whatever happens in the moment and the spontaneity? You're not going to like this answer, but I would say it's <laughs> it's almost 100% whatever happens in the moment. <laughs> but, you know, we've been doing it for a long time. And he's someone who's like, I don't want to know any of the questions. I don't want to know anything. Like, he doesn't want to know anything beforehand. So I'll usually just go along with him. But sometimes I like to know a little bit, you know. But there's a producer who will just set it up for us. And I think we've kind of started doing knowing nothing because that's what he likes and um it works though because you know then it feels very present and then you're you're not you because it's it's you're hearing someone talk about their problems and then from from them talking about it you've got to come up with what's inside of you that could be a reflection or could help them and I think that being very present in the moment for that type of thing is ideal. And in the book as well, you talk a little bit about how when you first started writing stand-up and getting into the world of comedy and you were taking classes with Adam Barnhart, that he really was just like, you know, it needs to be your voice and, and do whatever you want to kind of bring to the stage in your own personal style um, and how that really opened up who you became as a stand-up comedian right from the beginning. Um, but I also love the detailing of your first show where you kind of wrote out all these different themes and topics and then would write a page on each and then kind of hone in on, okay, what really works for the show? And I was interested in how, you know, those early classes with him and, and that being kind of how you approached your first show relates to the way that when you're doing a stand up and you're writing a whole segment now, you go into the process of writing and creating that thematically again, in terms of just thinking of all the different topics that you want to touch upon. Well, one thing that happened for me with my writing that was really not a good thing was Twitter. So once Twitter happened, a lot of the comic ideas that I would take to Starbucks and, and write at the top of the page and then write free form on what could be funny about it. I would just tweet it out and then never revisit it. And so that was a challenge. And I don't use Twitter that much anymore, kind of because of that. So I, I think like as a comedian, you're just, you're always, you're always changing your approach. At least I am. You're always figuring out what works for you. Even like backstage Moshe, like when we went on tour together, I'd be backstage just kind of like shut off and just kind of sitting there writing my set list. And Moshe would be like, come on, come on, get in a good mood. We got to go out there. Come on. And he'd always do that. And then for a while I was like, okay. And then try to do what he's saying. And then I realized I'm like, wait a second, that's not my process. Cause I would still go out there and do great. My process is just shutting off and saving it for when I get on stage in the green room, you know? And his process is like, okay, I'm gonna start now. And he wants to start like being really exuberant backstage and that's his thing. So it's like, and he never uses a set list. And I'm always doing like, honestly, like a half hour before my show, I'm like writing tags and figuring, 
you know, because that's like the most concentrated I will ever be about the, that show is like right before it. So, you know, that's a time where I'm like really liking to focus and go over my set. And, you know, I, I think that like everybody's different. And the more time you spend doing something, the more time you figure out what works for you and and just being really confident in what works for you and not letting someone else tell you like how you should be approaching it. Um, the whole writing about a topic, that's just literally the only way I could think to write a joke. Like, I'm sure there are other ways of doing it. Um, it's, it's, it's very personal. I mean, some people meet with someone else and, and talk about jokes and try to like generate punchlines that way. Or, you know, I, I think that a lot of these Harvard type guys, like they just like think in punchlines, you know, they can write a joke about anything that doesn't have anything to do with them. Whereas for me, I feel like I have to like live something to be able to write a joke about it, which can be kind of annoying because it takes a while. And in the acknowledgements of the book, you you kind of reference that this might be the only book that you write because of how challenging and how difficult it was throughout the journey. Um, what what would you say in reflection were the most challenging elements and aspects of, of trying to write this book and really, you know, because it's not just about writing it in one pass, it's really about spending several years with it, like you said, you know, and your whole life was evolving and changing throughout that entire time as well. Well, I think as a stand-up comedian, it's, the way you think in a joke form is a little more succinct, you know, how econ economical, whereas like a book is more like almost like an accordion, you know, it's like stretching out. So how can I stretch out this idea, not for space, but for depth? So, you know, there's, there's one point, you know, and I, I, I never did this on stage, but where my dentist was like, one child's not a family. You need to have another baby now, you know? And that's just like a funny thing he said, but like, what's behind that, you know? And so when you kind of stretch out that idea and why is this man telling me this and what does he think is it? And, and is it only, is it not a family if it's only one child? And, you know, what's his approach? And of course that's a man's approach to it. And, you know, it's, oh, and wait, why is this man telling me what I should do with his fingers in my mouth? And, and wait, that reminds me of when, the uh, gynecologist had his fingers up inside me and was telling me what I should do. And what's this idea of men in doc in you know, roles of doctor telling me what I should do with my body. And so it's like by stretching it out, you start to like see so much other stuff. And, you know, I think what I've learned is I want to take that approach to writing stand up as well, because that's how you get more, more stuff, you know, um, my, that's how you mine for more. So. I really love that in terms of, of details and process and just hearing all about the journey of writing this book. Um, congratulations on everything with the book. It's really, really wonderful. And thank you so much, Natasha. Thank you. And I love that you guys focus on the creative process. It's really cool.